to the book of Matthew, doing our order of service a little bit different this morning, and uh, going to get right to the message because we'll do a little more singing at the end, as and then before we have our baptism this morning. It's a blessing to be able to uh, take care of one of the ordinances of the church that we don't see happening as often as we'd like, but uh, this morning we're going to uh, have baptism at the conclusion of our service. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 as we uh, continue uh, studying the book of Matthew. And this morning we want to look at an invitation from the king. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll be looking at the first 14 verses. Most of us uh, receive invitations throughout the year requesting our attendance at various functions. Uh, maybe some of you have been invited recently, and, uh, and I think you had been because I saw some of you at one of these occasions yesterday. But uh, some uh, invitations are wedding in- invitations, uh, and sometimes they're from longtime family friends. Others uh, are very vivid in color and their graphics invite you to attend a birthday party. Uh, We attended two birthday parties uh, this last uh, few days uh, over there in the cities. Two grandchildren celebrated birthday parties and it's a blessing to be close enough to get in on those. Uh, We haven't always had that uh, opportunity. Or there's a special holiday or graduation. I understand people are graduating these days. That's great. And uh, so, still other invitations call us to join for anniversary celebrations or the opening of a new business or a special uh, sale. Well, you ever got an invitation to go to a special sale? That's, uh, that's wonderful. Uh, and then, of course, we get invita- invitations to open credit card accounts almost on a daily basis. We get these invitations. And... Um, you cannot possibly respond to every invitation that comes through the mail. So what you do is you involve yourself in a discarding process as you sort through your mail. Uh, Keep, throw away, throw away, throw away, throw away, throw away, keep, throw away. You know, it's kind of one of those deals. You get a lot of junk mail, right? Uh, It's addressed to somebody in your home who's called occupant. I've never named one of my kids occupant before. And, uh, or current resident. Uh, it may have that name on it. But uh, normally you don't give that much attention. And some invitations are actually attempts to lure you into a, a business setting perhaps that you'll have to spend money. And uh, of course if you spend that money you're going to make a big profit if you answer that invitation. Uh, you have to decide whether or not you have a particular need to justify that participation. But you know, some invitations are quite different. They come from very close friends who invite you to be a part of an honorable occasion. And you dare not neglect these invitations. Your attendance is valued by the one offering the invitation. You honor this friend when you attend and you likely find yourself entering into a certain measure of joy and satisfaction by accepting their invitation. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's invitation for us to have a relationship with Him. And this invitation rests upon the character of the one offering it. And it comes from a certainty of His honor and our benefit. 
It's given out of much love and kindness with the assistance of, or the assurance of grace sufficient to accomplish every detail. The eternal king is no mere businessman trying to get a new customer. He speaks of, with eternal authority. And he calls upon us to heed the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, and what is involved in the king's invitation to us. That's what we want to talk about this morning, an invitation from the king. First of all, here in Matthew chapter 22, we look at verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see here the refusing uh, the king, refusing the king. Notice verse 1, it says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again, by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And the parable here is uh, a third in a series that the Lord gave in the presence of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, the first parable dealt with the religious leaders' rejection of God's authority. We talked about that a couple of Sundays ago, and uh, it demonstrated by their a rejection of Jesus Christ. The second uh, epitomized the religious leader's folly in rejecting God's way to righteousness through his son, the cornerstone. We saw that last Sunday. Now the continued theme of rejecting God's revealed will in the gospel of the son is found here in chapter 22 in this present parable. And again, we're accustomed to a wedding or a reception lasting maybe uh, sometimes uh, these days, lasts a few hours. Uh, you know, you have a wedding, and uh, the shorter you can make the ceremony these days, the better it seems like, and uh, that, that's what they try to, to work to, toward, because they don't want to say, I do, uh, we do, we're, we're going, and we're going to go eat, and then we're going to leave, okay? Uh, so uh, that's kind of what the, the present-day uh, case is. But in the day of the Lord Jesus, in the case of a royal wedding, the celebration might go on for two or three weeks. Uh, to be invited by the king as his guest for a wedding of his son, the anticipated heir to the throne, would have been an opportunity of a lifetime. And such an invitation usually came by a personal envoy uh, of the uh, King and once invited, a citizen would feel a very deep obligation to attend the wedding feast or face the displeasure of the king. And we might say that it was an invitation you could not refuse. Nor would one desire to refuse the invitation of such a royal king in which every provision for the celebration was made by the king. You didn't have to bring your own drink or your own food, okay? This was an invitation that everything was provided for by the king. It is in this sort of familiar setting and language that our Lord addresses his hearers to explain to them that even a greater invitation, the invitation to be a part of God's kingdom, and he begins by explaining the nature of the parable here in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And so he opens a window for us to kind of look through to a, at another aspect of his kingdom. His sovereign rule over all and the righteous relationship to the sovereign Lord that calls us to uh, be kingdom citizens. Now notice this king's invitation, first of all. The king's invitation, the wedding feast had been prepared. 
those who had been previously invited were now summoned to come to this feast at the beginning of the celebration. You notice there in verse 3 it says, And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding that they would not come. And they would not come. Well, all seemed to be in order as the king had earlier put his guests on notice of upcoming wedding celebration. It was not an ordinary occasion. The king's son would be married. He desired to honor his son with a lavish celebration. To be named one of the king's guests would have been a great honor for anyone living in the kingdom. Surely no one would dare to refuse the king's invitation. And yet as the servants would summon the guests and presumably came to provide even transportation for them, they found an unexpected response, and they would not come. They would not to come. Seemingly the initial list of guests had had their excuse or reason for not attending. The language here is very, very firm. It says they did not will to come. That's what uh, we're seeing here. They did not will to come. They chose not to come. It was not that the king had failed to prepare or that he had failed to notify them. He hadn't just called them up the morning of and said, hey, come to my, uh, my, our, my son's wedding. No, he'd made preparation. He had notified them before. But these invited guests all knew what would take place. But even though the king had invited them, they were not willing to come. Now, how do we account for such a strong rejection of the king's invitation? Well, it's obvious here that Jesus Christ is giving us a picture of what God has done in preparing Israel for the gospel. Many messengers had come in previous centuries announcing that God would send the messianic king. John the Baptist had boldly announced that the time had arrived, the Messiah was present. The arrival of the messianic kingdom had come. The new age for humanity had dawned. God had come among His creatures to redeem His people for Himself for all eternity. And so we find Jesus Christ announcing this advent of the kingdom and calling to repentance. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Here was the invitation calling upon all to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus had sent forth the twelve and later the seventy as witnesses of of Christ the King, inviting all to repent and believe in Him. And they would not come. And they would not come. Though the messengers had faithfully invited the masses of Israel to believe in Jesus Christ, for the most part, they were unwilling. Only a handful of the thousands in Israel believed. Even the crowds that followed Jesus would follow, show their fickleness when the time came to submit to the Lord, uh, to Him as Lord and follow His teaching. They refused to satisfy their spiritual hunger on the bread of heaven. They would not. And such a position demonstrates a heart of selfishness and self-centeredness. Unwilling to partake of the king's offer of, in the gospel. They refuse his invitation to partake of his provisions in the gospel. Well, rebuffed as he was, the king in our story showed incredible mercy and kindness. Notice there in verse 4, he says, And again 
He sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. He did not want them to to misunderstand. He was not asking them to prepare the feast. He had already done that. He was not asking them to come to a feast that lacked preparations. This wasn't just potluck dinner. Everything necessary for them to partake had been set forth. Nothing was neglected or left undone. Look at verse 5. But they made light of it. And they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Even though they, it really did not matter that to them, at least they presumed it didn't matter whether they rejected the king. Now, you know, we don't live in a monarchy today. We, we can only imagine how foolish that response would have been for the, uh, to an ancient king that ruled the land with absolute authority. As though they had trivialized the king's invitation, giving every impression that it really didn't matter. Well, does not that picture many who've heard the gospel invitation? It may have come through a pulpit or a one-on-one or a, a visit or in a Bible study or even in a personal reading of scriptures. And God's invitation to a relationship with Him through the gospel of Jesus Christ is made very clear. And yet unconcerned for the honor of the Creator or for one's own eternal soul, this person finds other things to occupy his mind. As Jesus tells the story, the guests go about their normal responsibilities of life, one to his farm, another to his merchandise or his business. And what they are doing was not evil. It's not wrong to be a farmer. It's not wrong to own a business. They were just living normal lives. But the evil came when they trivialized and neglected the king's invitation to pursue the normal course of life. They might have said, oh, I've heard the gospel. Yes, I think it's probably true, but you know, I don't have time for that right now. I have other things to do. I have a life to live. I have activities to pursue. I have a career to make. I have other interests that are more more important. Maybe later I'll have time to give the gospel uh, some attention, but not now. I'm just too busy with my life to think about what God has said. Such unconcern for the soul and for heeding God's invitation to come to Christ through the gospel is far too common today. But can that be done without consequences? Can we put off what Jesus Christ presses upon us to be of utmost concern? What many take, while many take the unconcerned approach, others aggressively oppose. Verse 6 says, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. It goes on all the time throughout our world today. Tens of thousands of Christian witnesses are mistreated, are tortured, imprisoned every year as people react to the gospel. Tens of thousands are killed annually because of their hatred of the gospel message. Even in our country, through though few deaths have been reported for gospel witnesses, it often happens that Christians are mistreated 
because they offer sinful people the only way of forgiveness and peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you have been out calling on someone and someone said, leave, get out of here. Or they may have slammed the door in your face and said, I don't want any of that stuff. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't need it. Can they do so without consequences? Notice the king's answer. Jesus shows the response of the king to all those who are rejecting his invitation. Verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. What we might expect an ancient monarch to do when his honor was trampled upon by unworthy subjects took place. He sent his armies. Some of you probably thought, boy, if I had an army, I'd send it send it to that person who rejected the gospel. But this man, this king, he destroyed those who refused him. But what do we expect God the Creator to do? Now, it's not our place to destroy those who reject, but because we're not the king. What do we expect God to do, though, when people refuse him? Can it come without consequences? Or does God just, well, I was just hoping. No. He doesn't just hope for the best. Someday there will be judgment day. You know, Jesus had already told the religious leaders that had rejected him that even tax collectors and prostitutes would get into the kingdom ahead of them. And further, he told them that the kingdom had been taken away from them and they they would know what it was like for the cornerstone, the one who is the only way to kingdom, God's kingdom, was going to fall on them in judgment. And he uses the imagery of a king in the sense of justice to remind all that those who will refuse him is his answer. That's the, how the king will answer. Well, what does it matter to God if I do not want to follow Jesus Christ? Can he not just leave me alone? Can he not just leave me to my own decisions for life? I suppose that would be the normal logic. And that might be the case if we were dealing with just mere men, but we're dealing with God the Creator, the the Sovereign of the universe. And we're dealing with one who is righteous and just, who in His holiness cannot allow even one sin to mar His creation without justice due. God's honor, God's dignity as an eternal king and judge demands that He satisfy every requirement of His moral law, which has been broken by every one of us. And how much more so will He require justice to be served to those who refuse the gospel invitation? that cost him the infinite price of the blood of his son. Notice, secondly, this morning, the pursuit by the king. In verse 8, it says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. 
something remarkable has happened here in the divine economy, though the very ones who ought to have made sense of the gospel and gladly submitted to the righteous lordship of Jesus Christ, did not the king pursued others. What made them unworthy? It was their rejection of the king's invitation. And their rejection of this benevolent offer revealed revealed serious flaws in his invitation. Excuse me. It revealed serious flaws, not in his invitation, but in their character. The worthiness was not in their person, but their response to the invitation. The same way God does not save those who are worthy due to some particular level. God does not save us because we have some talent. God does not save us because we have some ability. Those things came from God in the first place. God doesn't save us because we belong to a certain family. God doesn't save us because we, of who we are. The worthiness for any of us is found in the gospel itself. Because Jesus is worthy. And all who receive His substitution on behalf of sinners become worthy to be part of God's kingdom. It's only through Jesus Christ that we're, we become worthy at all. Now notice, to the unexpected, the implications in the parable would have been very clear to those hearing it. The religious leaders considered themselves to be worthy. They thought, hey, we're, we're the leaders of our nation. We're the leaders of our religion here. We're surely we're worthy. And so, yet they refused Christ revealed. And how Christ revealed their unworthiness. The very ones, these people who thought unworthy of God's mercy, especially Gentiles, were made worthy by God's work through His Son. Notice the way Jesus expressed this in his parable, verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. The term used for highways here can refer to a street crossing, or more likely in this case refers to a cut-through street that goes out of the city into the countryside. And the picture is one of the servants going far away, beyond the confines of the palace, to, the wedding, uh, to find wedding guests. Verse 10, It says, So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the last phrase reminds us of the grace found in the reach of God's mercy. He does not confine the gospel to just one tribe of humanity or one nation or to one race or to one particular stripe of moral behavior. The gospel reaches... People from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation because of the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. And so he goes to those who we wouldn't expect him to go to, but he goes to everyone. And notice how they're made worthy. The average person on the street is not fit to attend a royal wedding feast, we might say, It's socially prominent that uh, are invited to such occasions. Now that may be true in the realm of men. That's the way society might be, but that's not the way it is with God. 
He makes the unworthy worthy. The king in Jesus' parable sent his servants to the highways where they would surely find uh, some who were not socially prominent and none of us deserve the kindness of God shown through Christ. So we cry for his mercy and through Christ's death on our behalf, God has made unworthy worthy. Take the case of the believers in Corinth. It's a remarkable passage that Paul exhorts the Corinthians and in the process reveals the spiritual autobiographies uh, to this church, of this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Boy, you look at that list of deviants and criminal and immoral people, and yet that was the church at Corinth. Each one had been made worthy through Jesus Christ. God does not accept us into the kingdom because we've reached a certain standard of behavior or because we've done a prescribed ritual or because we look a certain way. He accepts us because of His great mercy and love, taking the action to provide salvation through Christ and taking the initiative through the Holy Spirit to bring us from deadness unto life. Picture of worthiness is found in the king's provision of wedding clothes. We can be certain that those that were rounded up in the streets didn't have their wedding clothes. But the king assumed that responsibility. He provided for each guest the appropriate attire for the wedding. In the same way, it's not our own righteousness that clothes us to stand in God's presence. God has taken on that responsibility. Paul expressed it clearly in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so then we come to a full house. In spite of the initial rejection of King's gracious invitation, by the time he sent the servants throughout the streets and the country find Decide to find both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Soon it appears fear that God frets away in heaven because so many would reject the gospel invitation. No, God's not wringing His hands over whether or not we will come. We cannot just assume that God is powerless. But we can be assured that the Heavenly Father has made every preparation for a full house. And He secured the full complement of kingdom citizens through the death of His Son. And Jesus testifies of this in John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is certainty in what Christ knew, and accomplished on the cross. And so we have in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1, much people in heaven. Much people in heaven. 
Even the heavenly multitude confesses to Christ that those he purchased for God with his blood, as it says in Revelation 5, 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, every tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth full house. That brings us to the standard of the king. So we come to this final point here. Notice verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. Here Jesus clarifies that not all who claim to be part of God's kingdom are really truly part of the kingdom. None will slip in unnoticed and unclothed in Christ's righteousness. And may I say here that as we come to this part about the garments, we can get sidetracked a little bit here if we're not careful. The point is not what you wear on the outside that saves you or condemns you. But I believe we can take a principle from this that God is concerned with our outward appearance. Like many things, God does not specifically lay down rules for dress, for church. And I don't agree with the casualness of our day, but I don't believe God does either. And if you're invited to a wedding, or if you're invited to a state dinner with the governor, I don't know if you've been invited to do that. I've been invited to pray before representatives in the Indiana House of Representatives. But I dare say you would not dress, that you would dress up in something better than your work clothes, in your everyday attire. But that's not really the teaching here in Matthew 22. He is speaking of spiritual garments. And notice here, the eye that sees all With great satisfaction, the king looks over the dinner guests. And verse 11 says, The king came in to see the guest, and he saw. Through the wedding hall was filled, though the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, the king quickly spotted one guest that had entered without the appropriate wedding attire. You see, no one escaped his gaze. He would not dishonor his son or the occasion by someone being inappropriately attired. And the point is well taken. Our God sees and knows everything. None will slip into his kingdom unclothed in Christ's righteousness. Even the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened into the eyes of him with whom we have to do. One that is infinitely holy cannot tolerate compromising his honor and his glory. His omniscient gaze assures us that no pretenders who masquerade as Christians on this earth will be admitted to the heavenly wedding feast. And so we come to just one thing. One thing was wrong. Verse 12. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And the question was asked without malice. 
It was a reasonable question for this grand occasion. The man had a chance to answer the king and explain himself. It says there, and he was speechless. He had no excuse, or at least all the excuses that he had planned to offer suddenly vanished in the presence of the king. It seems obvious that the king had provided his guests with garments fit for this wedding celebration, and yet this man continued wearing the same clothes that he'd always worn, and he failed to put on what the king had provided. Now we can speculate on why this happened. Was it neglect on his part, or was this man simply an absent-minded person? Was it a display of sheer arrogance, or did he, uh, would he not let anyone tell him, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to wear? Ever heard that before? Was it an overblown exaggeration of his own worth and his wisdom? Did he do it in, spiteful, uh, in spite of the king, to be spiteful to him, because at heart he really didn't love and respect the king? Was it simply a matter of self-determination that he would do what he wanted to do and he wasn't going to let anyone tell him different? Was it a presumption on his part that he really, he really wouldn't matter how he was clothed even though the king specified the entire necessary for the wedding? Was it because he thought that such a requirement would not matter? And unless you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will not have a part in God's kingdom. No excuse will work before the presence of God who sees and knows all. But someone insists that he wants to be a Christian, but he wants to do it on his own terms. Another wants to be called a Christian, but not interested in living as though Christ is the Lord of his life. Someone else thinks that his own interpretation of God's ways are just as good as another person's interpretation. So he refuses to go the way of humility via the cross. Jesus makes it very clear we do not make the terms with the eternal King. We come to Him through His provision that He made for us through His Son, or we do not come at all. And that brings us to particular grace here without Further explanation, Jesus ends this parable with a striking statement, summarizes the primary emphasis of this parable, the sovereign working of God in salvation. Verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. The invitation extended across the globe, but few are chosen. The gospel goes far and wide. It reaches many people. Most of them are like men, the man in the parable. They hear, but they do not heed. And in comparison, those, with those many that are lost, there are but few that are saved. Few that are chosen from eternity to inherit everlasting life. Salvation, then, in the final analysis, is not a human accomplishment, but it's a gift. A wonderful gift of God's wonderful grace. I wonder, do you hear the Lord's invitation to know Him through the Gospel? Then do not make your excuses or pay no attention or attempt to reject Him because He is the eternal King. And to hear His invitation, you need to come to the wedding feast to know His mercy.
You need to call upon Him. You need to look to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You need to trust His merit for you before the justice of God and rely upon Him as your King. You know, every church, even the best effort, even with the best effort to avoid it, has those who think that they're a part of God's kingdom, but they've never been clothed. They've never been clothed with the righteousness of Christ through the gospel. Even Spooner Baptist, I believe, can have people coming here faithfully every Sunday and still have people that aren't dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Again, you can't depend upon your parents' salvation. You can't depend upon someone else's clothing. The king in this parable commanded the servants concerning this one man without the wedding clothes. Go back to verse 13. It says, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that description goes way beyond discomfort. That one thing that none of us can do without in light of eternity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what an invitation you have in this parable. Look to Christ. Trust Him. Trust in His death and His resurrection and receive His righteousness in place of your rags of sin. Let's bow in prayer.